Hi, I'm Nick. And I'm Toby. We're the co-founders of Ask Us for Ideas, or Alfie, as most people call it, where we help the world's most ambitious businesses, large or small, to connect with a collection of the best and most exciting creative agencies from around the world. Being at the intersection of these brands and creative teams for the best part of a decade has allowed us to get to know some truly exceptional people. This podcast, Private Views, aims to shine a light on that, with the first series publishing conversations inside some of the industry's most revered creative studios, digging deep, looking beyond their portfolios and into their unique experiences and thought processes. In this episode, we open the doors to Koto, a relatively new agency on the block. Launched in 2015, they've rapidly built a reputation as one of the best in the industry, as well as managing to open two new offices in Los Angeles and Berlin, on top of their HQ in London. Well, just in everyday life for us all, you know, you, you've got a big decision to make. You think it through as, as rationally as you possibly can. Sit on it for too long and the fear creeps in. And I and personally, that is just, you know, not the way that I, uh, I believe that we should um, live our lives, I guess. From day one, they've been masters at punching above their weight, acting as Airbnb's creative agency of record, whilst also transforming brands like Sonos, Fanta, PayPal, Gumtree, and London's Bridge Theatre, not to mention a whole host of disruptive startups, soon to be household names. In every case, their work is simple, joyful, clever, and lively, adopting not so much a house style as a house attitude, optimism. From the outside, we often hear other agencies ask, how are Koto doing this? Their rise has been meteoric and their expansion enviable. Our producer, David Mission, caught up with the gang to discuss the value of personal chemistry, their fearless attitude, and tips on growing a business quickly without losing a sense of who you are. James, I'm creative director and founder of Koto. Uh, and could you, just in your own words, kind of give me a bit of an origin story of Coda? How did this studio begin, and what was, you know, what was your personal kind of ambition? So, having worked in the industry for at point of start about fourteen years, I think I had found that there was a lot of great thinking, and Britain and London specifically had always been a really good centre point for branding. Uh, but what I found was that the digital world, products, tech, whatever you call it, hadn't uh, quite meshed with the way in brand ha- had kind of with other, with other industries or other kind of verticals, if you want to use business speak. And I think what I found was that it took, took a certain amount of understanding of digital products to be able to really understand how brand applied to them. And so the origin story of Koto is very much about understanding there was a need for that in the market and seeing that through. And it, it is very much birthed from the work that Joey, Tim and myself had done on the Airbnb rebrand and seeing the kind of resonance and success of that and understanding that that was relevant to other companies. Um, and so I think that was kind of, I guess, the pushing point for me that made me realise that as much as I was happy in the employment of others, it was time for me to go out and branch into a space where I could test my theories with a slight more freedom. And uh, how have those theories uh, held up, I suppose, or or what um, 
what was the, what was the theory? Kind of what did you take away from from that kind of fun, uh, foundational experience with Airbnb that you felt you wanted and needed to apply to to other businesses? I think a lot of tech companies had thought that in the same way that they built digital products and resonance and other aspects of their uh, kind of identities themselves, they felt that they could do that for their brand as well. And in some cases, they had been successful by kind of iteratively building something up. I think a good benchmark example is something like Google, which has built a very effective brand over time. But you shouldn't overlook the fact that a lot of agencies have kind of built the bricks in that wall and have uh, have, do, have kind of been successful in that way. I think the flip side of that is something like Facebook, who's never really looked into their brand in any meaningful way. And by not doing that, they... <laughs> It's very hard for the general public to really know what Facebook stands for. They've always kind of gone with this kind of we're a platform, we're agnostic approach. And I kind of fundamentally think that the need for a digital product, tech company, a platform to have a brand has actually increased in the time that we've been running Koto because tech kind of in the 2000s was broadly seen as very popular, very successful, bringing change, societal change that was needed. If you look at something like social media, if you go back 10 years, it was brilliant. I said, have you tried this thing called Twitter? It's awesome. It's great. You can do all this stuff. Fast forward 10 years, you know, very, very much the, the kind of the, the converse, very negative perceptions around social media. Um, and now I'm not saying that brand is going to save that, but I think companies' reputational way that they talk about themselves has become more and more important. And I think, you know, like any revolution, what happens is people want to understand what stays and what goes. And I think tech companies and navigating what are quite much more critical waters. And so I think having a brand in place is is something that they need to engage with in much further. I also think what's also happened in the in the kind of four and a half years, five years that we've been doing this is there's been just an absolute flood of capital to the market, loads more tech companies coming into space. And so differentiation is way more important than it would have been a decade ago. And so therefore, you know, people doing either very similar stuff or stuff that feels very adjacent to each other, brand is a differentiator that works in that way. In that way, you know, if I take a very kind of straightforward example, if you look at kind of Apple Music versus Spotify, Spotify have invested in their brand, have this kind of celebration of difference. Um, you know, very identical products in a way in terms of what they offer, the experience, etc. But Apple has never really managed to grasp music in the way that they have in, in other medias, etc. And so therefore, they've never felt that authentic in that space, whereas Spotify has felt very authentic, has felt like it is music for music lovers, has really dealt with that stuff in that way. And so I think that kind of that has really helped. And, you know, we've not worked with those companies, but it's really kind of driven yet again the need for a, a, an organization such as ours to be able to help people kind of like really nail what it is that makes them different and then get it celebrated and out in the world. Hi, I'm Caroline Matthews. I'm Managing Director at Koto. In establishing Koto, you know, obviously you, you would have to think critically about a number of things. One being, you know, what is it that makes a, a kind of good creative agency? You know, what is it, what are the foundations for us moving forward? Uh, and the other is obviously about maybe the, the team that you're putting together, because I know, you know, there's, uh, at Kodo, uh, you have some kind of image makers, photographers who are, who are part of the team, but not necessarily kind of a business development director. You've made some kind of different choices than other agencies. So if you could maybe walk me through just all of those kind of logistical, operational concerns that, that kind of you faced that, that you 
kind of have have helped have used to kind of help mold what Kodo has has become today. Okay, yeah. There's quite a lot of answers I've got for that. I'll start. So I think at the very core of what makes Koto, and this may seem like a very obvious thing, but um, is skill and craft. And Joey and James and Tim are very, very dedicated and passionate to that. And every single person that works within Koto has that. Uh, and that is not compromised at any point. Um, and then what brings all of those things together is how we all work together as a group. Um, I, I'm personally not a very competitive person. However, as a group next door, they all have their individual uh, competitiveness. However, they work as a group. And that is fundamentally very important. You know, there is not one author of, of an idea or of a brand. Uh, it is shared. And with that, what, come, what comes with that, rather, is... You know, when someone is leading a project, there will be times they will then may need to lean on other designers to help them through it. And there is this uh, shared ownership and shared passion and shared um, ambition, I guess, uh, for, for everything that comes out of Koto. And that is, that's very real. There's a part of our industry which is completely unspoken, which is a lot of people uh, are essentially creating a blueprint of another company that's already existed. And historically, you can trace the lineage of those companies back through where a lot of those people have left previously and stuff. And what you find is there's a really interesting thing in the freelance community where people go from business to business and they are basically going through exactly the same motions regardless of which studio they're working at because uh, the origin of a lot of those ideas comes from a company 20 years, 15 years ago. And I think when we started Koto, it wasn't about rejecting that heritage or saying, this is a wrong way, we're gonna revolutionize it. But it was about identifying the fact that yes, we are all very guilty of undertaking exactly the same process, regardless of whether you work at company X or company Y. And so I think part of that is about changing some of the fundamentals, identifying what works and what doesn't. And one of those things was also about actually not be limiting ourselves by our own kind of geographical comfortableness, distance, you know, we work in an enjoyable industry and so there is a lifestyle component to that which which kind of limits a lot of people I think. There's also a bit of it as well which is I think designers as quite often kind of very thoughtful, intellectual, slightly cautious people because they're, they've kind of been trained to think about everything that they're doing and be very kind of like uh, in, in kind of forensic in the way that they go about things probably feel more reticence when it comes to kind of big moves like it's extending. I think from our point of view, if we extend into a new market, what we're not doing is we're not making a replica of what already exists somewhere else. And when I mean that is not we're not doing is opening an office that has 30 seats, you know, has all the things which our London studio has. We're actually going back to our origin story where Joey and I, when we very first started, sat in the corner of two illustrators we know studio in East London and paid 200 pounds a month for our desks. and had some old monitors and, and we're not kind of like saying you have to go back to kind of like this kind of very scrappy space but what we're doing is we are entering a new market as a startup so in Los Angeles we're in a in a WeWork and in Berlin when we first started we shared with an architect you know we're, we are not trying to create kind of carbon copies and I, and I think that's the mistake that a lot of studios make is they think they have to replicate the thing which is obviously very capital heavy and requires uh, a lot more risk and, and we're, we've kind of nullified those elements of it. 
And uh, despite kind of, I guess, having a, a somewhat global presence, you still identify as a, as a kind of British design company, um, uh, British design aesthetic. Uh, what does that uh, What does that mean? So I think there is a historical quirk so, to why British design education is good. I think many people have written, why does Britain give so much music to the world articles in the past? And I don't think there is a single answer. But my sense of the thing is that there is a combination of uh, the historic nature of education in the UK combined with a slightly British cynicism, uh, plus this idea that we have a bit of tall poppy syndrome where we don't like people to get too elevated above their station, um, that combines together to make us quite inquisitive, but at the same time slightly bullshit-free when it comes to thinking about things. And I think design, visual identity, branding, strategy requires a certain level of rejection of the first answer, uh, a kind of a sense of having to do better. And so I think there is something in British design which the world really identifies with because they kind of see something that's been engineered maybe further than the kind of first idea or this kind of exciting moment at the beginning. I also think we're completely helped by things like Johnny Ive at Apple and these other kind of lauded British design successes, whether that's, you know, Paul Smith, um, vehicle design, all these other things which are kind of widely recognised as kind of like something that we're good at in a country that likes to be down on itself. Uh, and, I, and so I think for us, what we've also found is, particularly in our work that we've done in Silicon Valley, is that that is recognised as something which is a strength of ours. And so therefore, I think it would be remiss of us to lose that strength and that identity. There's also an honesty to the fact that, let's be honest, the creative director who sits in Los Angeles and the creative director that sits in Berlin are British, have come through that, that same space. And so therefore, it's about being honest about who we are, I think. You know, we are a global company. We are we recognise and identify as, as a kind of a, a British approach, a British design approach. But at the same time, it is our origin story, and so therefore, you have to be authentic to that origin story. I think. One of the things beyond its design work that it's known for is, of course, uh, being being an agency that's built up uh, a strong reputation uh, quickly and also opened to other offices relatively quickly. I, I think it, uh, it probably speaks a lot to uh, just your attitude as an, as an agency that there wasn't as much hesitation. I think a lot of other agencies kind of sit on these things for a long time, know that they want to be out somewhere, but maybe do kind of wait for that big project to you know, help finance it or kind of, you know, uh, be, the, be the impetus to, to finally take that step. But you've done it in an astonishingly short amount of time for, you know, in the life of most agencies. Um, I was wondering if that you feel that, if you think that that really, that kind of lack of hesitation and just a, a kind of uh, drive to just kind of have a good idea and do it is something that, that you think underpins Kodo. 100%. Um, I think, well, just in everyday life for us all, you know, you, you've got a big decision to make. You think it through as, as rationally as you possibly can. Sit on it for too long and the fear creeps in. Sit on it too long and we can all put challenges and barriers in front of us across any type of decision. And I and personally, that is just, you know, not the way that I... Uh, I believe that we should um, live our lives, I guess. But, um, um, 
Yeah, we are, we are, I've mentioned this before, we are an instinctive uh, bunch. And I think, you know, and that also comes out with, even with our work, you know, you you just feel you've got a good idea and you just run with it and you just kind of uh, work it through as best as you possibly can to see if it has legs, to see if it could actually succeed as you initially think. And I think that's what we, we did for LA. We could be like, this feels right, this looks right, this could be right, but we're only ever going to know if we get out there. Um, I've spoken to lots of different people over the last year and you know and they say oh we've got a retained client and there's a huge amount of money and it's just sitting there but we're too nervous because what happens if they go um, but isn't that the case in it in, in all businesses you know there's a if you take those first true steps and you are careful with how you build upon it then you minimise the risk. Um, and we, you know, we had the luxury of knowing that we have London that was solid. Um, and, you know, if anything happened, the guys could come back. Um, it had, there was a, a level of financial support, um, but we also knew that we were going into LA with us in a startup frame of mind as well, and that we were gonna do what we did in London and, and be scrappy and take those exciting jobs and, and not worry too much about the profit and not worry, you know, just make sure that the work was as best as it possibly could be. Um, and yeah, just believe in it. I think that's the, you know, have your heart and eyes open and believe in what you're gonna do. And I think that um, ultimately people will see that and they'll also believe in that, whether that be people that you want to hire or the clients you get to meet. Um, and yeah, there's always a solution to it, I believe, to every problem where anything that goes wrong, you can get yourself out of it. <laughs> and what for you makes uh, you know, a kind of good Koto client. What what types of clients do you do you kind of connect with, or do you feel really bring out the best in the people who work here and their and their design work? The first test for us is do we believe in what they're doing, um, and that may sound fairly obvious, but actually that sparks that excitement and those ideas and those opinions really early on. Um, and I think during those initial periods when we are meeting and we're sharing those creds, I think it's a, it's a, it's a two-way piece here. You know, they, we're very honest and we're very open and there's the opportunity for uh, potential clients to ask us anything and for them to feel, start to feel uh, whether they can really work with us and they believe in what we're doing and that we can deliver what they need for their brand. And also that happens the other way around as well. You know, what gets us really excited is when you see the passion and the drive and the and the excitement in that client about their new new product or what their, uh, their new challenge that is, is ahead for them. I'm Arthur Foliard and I'm a senior designer at Coro. How would you kind of describe the culture of the office? It, well, it changed, I think, from when I started to now. I think when I first started, it was really crazy, really mental, because there was 10 young people trying to do things differently. And I think we're still obviously quite, not crazy, I say, but like a bit different, I think. But I think it's really positive. There's a really good, optimistic vibe throughout the studio. Like, People are always in a good mood and obviously you met Caroline and James, you can see that, you know, they're like happy, I suppose. And I think, yeah, like I would say optimistic is the right word. I'm Alice Walker, Verbal Strategy Director. 
and that covers the strategy side of things at Koto, also tone of voice, messaging, uh, content creation as well. From your perspective, what is what does kind of Koto represent as an agency to its clients? Uh, why do you think a client would be kind of attracted to Koto versus an, a different design uh, agency? We talk a lot about being at the intersection of brand and digital, um, and the fact that we understand that um, today any brand that exists will have to have some sort of digital presence, and even <clears throat> even if you are a mattress startup or a makeup startup, you still have a, a digital product that people will really strongly engage with. Um, so I think we do that really well. Um, but And that's something we talk about a lot. But from my perspective, I think we also really support um, each business very differently, um, whether it's a massive kind of global corporate or whether it's a startup, we really think about exactly what they need. We don't just um, trot out the same frameworks. We really think about actually, from a strategic point of view, what's going to make the biggest difference to the business um, and try and deliver that. So it's not really a one-size-fits-all approach. I think, you know, there's lots said about Britain and America being two culture, cultures kind of conjoined with one language. And I think there is a sense of when we first engage with a team and we work with them over there that there's a certain amount of kind of orbiting around each other as we try and work each other out. And I think what America and Silicon Valley specifically has, which is very inspiring, is optimism and in absolute spades of it. And so they come into every sprint, into every design engagement with like pure optimism. I think what we offer is that kind of slightly um, inquisitive, but also wariness when it comes to the, the answers we're finding. And so for me, I think it's about the combination of the two things, which, which, which works really well. There's no doubt that I've worked with some product teams in Silicon Valley who are a bit confused by us, and uh, they find our sense of humor weird, they find the, they find the fact that we swear a lot quite weird, um, but they're also interested in the way that we uh, have a working process which is slightly different, and so therefore I think it's a bit, it's about kind of like mixing the best of both worlds. I think particularly what the Silicon Valley teams that we've worked with are really interested in is our use of things like reference, for example. We understand that there is a historical uh, kind of archive of 20th century art, design, kind of design thinking, etc., that we bring to our work in kind of like daily basis. And I don't, you know, I think Silicon Valley is maybe more self-referential. They're looking at other products that are out in market right now. And so I think that sometimes is quite surprising for them, the, the way that we're using that reference as a kind of uh, everything that's come before to be able to kind of build that as an arc to, to the challenges that we're facing today. And that's obviously uh, interesting because obviously, you, you, as you mentioned, you know, there's a lot, it's a, it's a very kind of crowded market, a lot of these different uh, kind of <clears throat> sectors within tech, whether it's energy or um, finance or healthcare, et cetera. Um, uh, do you think that it's, it's that ability to kind of pull in a diversity of references that kind of allows you to help those businesses differentiate I think it is, but it's also the limit to us sometimes because we show them what true differentiation looks like and they get a bit scared by it because it doesn't look like everyone else. So there's a kind of classic example of that is if you look at the SaaS space, there's a kind of colourful, illustrated person aesthetic. There's a kind of certain colour palette. There's a kind of certain poppiness to a lot of that work, which they'll want us to kind of operate within that space. And sometimes we'll try and challenge and push away from that. And so I think that kind of wider reference can be both a strength and a weakness because it can, you know, scare people. I think the most classic thing is the, the potential person you work with who say, you know, I really want to disrupt. I want to see difference. I want to see this stuff. And then you show them true disruption or difference. 
and they get a bit scared and go back to something they know. So, you know, it's, it doesn't always work on that front. I think, um, I think our kind of our reference points and our, and our approach is about admitting that true originality doesn't exist. You know, something always references something else, and that's true for most visual disciplines with which uh, kind of the world engages. Even things like music obviously have kind of like million touch points that, that everyone pulls from. And so I think for us it's by acknowledging that, but then also understanding the position of what we're making and how that exists with everyone else, we can work out where differentiation kind of works. We also are, uh, are aware enough to know that no one wants to completely stand out and for everything to be different. They need an element of something which feels like it kind of fits in and we then kind of work out which part should stand out and kind of how you navigate around that. What do you think should be the kind of main takeaways for, for that you want to communicate in terms of the office culture or the, the kind of tone that you take in relating with clients or with each other? Very short answer is optimism. That was producer David Michon visiting Koto. A big thank you from myself, Nick and Toby for listening. Thank you also to James, Caroline and Alice from Koto for their time. To Sean Crook for editing this episode to George Grinling for the theme music, and to May Thor for Private View's visual identity. To find other episodes, head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever else you absorb your podcasts. Or to find out more about Alfie, please visit our website, aufi.com. We're also on social media using the handle at Ideas. And finally, please do share this episode, rate us on Apple Podcasts, and do listen to the others we put out as part of this series. Until next time. Thank you.